Revelation, and we're on number six today, so we've got one more next week, Lord willing, unless he directs in another, uh, another situation, another direction there. I plan to wrap that up next week. But uh, today we're going to look at the church in Philadelphia. So each week I've tried to give you a little tagline to that church to kind of get your mind focused on what maybe God is saying to that church. And for Philadelphia, we are going to find a church that receives no condemnation at all. Everything about it is good. And so they are going to be labeled as the faithful church. So I'm going to ask you if you're able, one last time, would you stand with me this morning as we read and reverence God's Word together? We're going to read Revelation chapter 3. Verses 7 through 13. Revelation 3, 7 through 13. John writes this through inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord, again, we thank you for this time together. Pray that you would bless your word, Lord, that you would increase and I would decrease. And we give you all the praise today in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to ask you a question as we begin to start to get you to think about something. I want to ask you, and you don't have to answer this out loud, but what in your life do you pay the most attention to? What do you spend most of your time focusing on? Is it politics? Is it the stock market? Is it sports? Perhaps something else that I didn't name. But ask yourself, because all of us have points of interest in our life that we focus on. Have you ever stopped and thought for a moment what Jesus pays attention to? And you say, well, Pastor, He's the Son of God. He, he knows all things and he, he's, he's able to think about all things. And that is very true. But I want to ask you specifically, biblically, what are some things that Jesus devotes special attention to? I would like to argue that based on what we've been preaching through the last few weeks, Jesus play, pays very close attention to His local churches. He mentions these seven which were real churches by name. He knows intimate details about them. And I believe that in any biblical New Testament church where the Holy Spirit is present, God is active in that body and He's very aware of the needs, the wants, the sins that go on in that local church. He takes an intimate look at His people within these bodies. And so if Jesus pays close attention to the church, I would challenge that we as believers ought to also pay very close attention to the interests, the needs of 
the local church that we belong to. The opportunities that are present within these walls and outside the walls in the community that we exist in. I believe that God would want us to be very involved in knowing what is taking place in the body. So as we look at Philadelphia, we're going to look at the smallest of all these churches. It sat on a fault line, so it experienced earthquakes quite frequently. It was destroyed many times and rebuilt, but it was not anything impressive to look at from the outside. Uh, It was well known for making wine. They grew a lot of raisins there. But other than that, it really didn't have much of a reputation like some of these other cities that we've looked at, like Ephesus, for example. And uh, so as as we think about this, we're going to see that even though the city was not that impressive and they may have been overlooked, the church there was very important to Jesus. And he pays close attention to what is taking place there. And I believe he pays close attention to his church, whether big or small. He cares about his people. He cares about his church because it is his bride. And it's a shame to me today that so many people take such a low view of the church. So many people today say, I love Jesus. I'm just not that into church. Well, I don't know about you, but the word of God describes to us the fact that Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. And he takes a special interest. He loves the church. And we as His people ought to love the church because we are a part of it. I understand that the building is not the church because the popular thing today is to say, it's not the building, we are the church. Yes, we are the church. But the church, the ecclesia in the Greek means an assembly. And that means that we assemble together. The Scriptures teach on the first day of the week they met together, which is Sunday. And so what we are doing today is hopefully not just some religious routine. We're meeting here today as people who are supposed to love God and one another, to worship Him corporately, to confess our sins, to serve one another in love. We have a great opportunity every week to be the hands and feet of Jesus. That extends beyond these walls, hopefully, into your life every moment that you are walking and breathing. But this is special what we get to do. When we get a chance to come together, I believe that God is interested and how we worship, and what we are worshiping. It's a very important thing we do. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus gives these words. He says, I tell you, Peter, that on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, or against her. Now, on the heels of this, Peter has just made his great profession of faith. And Jesus is commending him for that. To where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believe and we know that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus makes this statement to Peter. Upon that rock, upon Christ, upon the foundation of the gospel, Jesus is building his church. Who is building the church? Jesus. You know know why so many churches are in a mess today? Because there's too many men trying to build something that only God can build. This is not my church. It's not your church. This is God's church. And as long as central, He will do a fine job of building it. But when we get in the way, we will most certainly mess it up. Any true New Testament church must have Christ at the center of everything that we do. That's why we sing certain songs and don't sing others. Because we are worried about ministries that don't put Christ first. That honor man and not God. That's why we don't use certain Sunday school materials. Because they honor man and not God. 
to the best of our ability, we may not always get it right, but we want to try to be a church that puts Jesus at the forefront of everything that we do. And if He is honored, then we've done our job. Regardless of the results, He will build His church. We don't have to worry about how many people showed up or didn't show up. That's on them. That's between them and God. But He will build His church if we stay faithful. But listen, it takes a while to build something. Sometimes, I mean, God can do it in a moment. He created the world in six days. But building a church takes time. But as God calls the people that He wants to each local body, and they hopefully use their gifts and their talents and their faithful to show up and serve, God will do something great as long as He is first. And this church put Jesus first. Matter of fact, when we read this letter, and we've already read a portion of it, we see that Jesus is the central theme of this church. He is mentioned over and over again. He said in that text from Matthew, not only will He build the church, but the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. Gates are a defensive thing for the most part. They keep people out, but they can also keep people in, can't they? When we think about that, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The enemy is doing everything he can to keep people from hearing the gospel, repenting of their sins and trusting Christ. But the church also has a job to protect believers from false teaching. And when we do our job, Jesus, or the, I'm sorry, the Satan is already defeated. He's already defeated, guys. He won the victory. Christ won the victory on the cross. We don't have to wonder how this thing turns out. We sang victory in Jesus. I wonder how many of you believe that. I wonder if you truly believe that there is victory today for you in Christ. What a blessed truth that that is. So Jesus gives these promises to Peter, and we see it in Philadelphia, this faithful church, that Christ is at the center. So let's look at some of the things that that John receives in this message. In verse 7, we hear that the one that is speaking, which we know from the opening verses, is the glorified Christ. He says, the words of the Holy One, the True One. It's so important that we have a proper perspective of Jesus. It amazes me today when I listen to some pastors and some theologians talk, and they speak about a Jesus that I don't know. They speak about a Jesus that I can't find in this book. They speak about a Jesus that changes with the times. They speak about a Jesus that accepts things that the Bible calls sinful. They've taken Jesus and they've created a God in their own image. They've replaced the biblical Jesus for a false Jesus who is really nothing more than themselves. That's exactly where we're at today. But when we look to the Word of God, we get a picture of the true Son of God. And He is holy. It means He is set apart. He is different. He's not like the world. He's not like anyone else. He's sinless. He's perfect in every way. That is the Jesus that we worship. He is true. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the source of all truth. The world will offer you all sorts of suggestions and opinions, but Christ will offer you the truth. He will offer you the straight and narrow path that will lead to eternal life, but unfortunately few find that path. And if you're walking it today, it may seem lonely sometimes. You may wonder if anybody anymore even cares. But God always has a remnant. He always has a people set apart for Himself. And while our numbers may grow smaller, we haven't lost one bit of our power. We haven't lost one bit of our victory. 
but we fail to recognize it, and so often we don't see that play out because we're not living with the victory that we truly have, with the power that we truly have. It amazes me, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And we don't, re- we don't live as though we recognize that power that we have. The Bible in Romans says that the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives in us. That's pretty powerful, right? We ought to walk around with a little bit more confidence than we do. Not in ourselves, but in the Spirit of God that lives within us. He is true and He is holy. Now the next line may not make a lot of sense on the surface reading. It says that He has the key of David. If we jump back into the Old Testament, I think we can see what is being said here in Isaiah chapter 22, verses 20 through 22. Listen to what it says there. In that day, he says, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Listen to what he says. I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. Does that sound a little bit familiar like what we read? Eliakim was replacing a man who had failed in his duty, and now he is given the responsibility of being the main man to the king. And so he carries with him the very authority that the king has. And he is able to open doors and close doors based on that authority. So when we read our text today and we see Jesus, He is the one that ultimately has rule and reign. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He can open any door that He chooses to open. And He can shut any door that He chooses to shut. And He has the power and authority. We don't need to fret and fear when God is on the throne. We know that He will do what is best and what is right. And we can trust Him. That is the description that we're getting here from John. He's opening doors and He's shutting doors. Now can I say this? In all my time in ministry and being in different churches and seeing different things, one of the biggest problems that I think is encountered in churches is a lot of times the church keeps knocking on a door that God has shut. If he shut it, you can pound on that thing all day long. But the other problem is, he swung wide open other doors, and we just do this. That looks open over there. I hope somebody goes through there first. I don't want to be first. It's like, what was that old game show? What's behind door number one, number two? Let's make a deal. We We don't necessarily... But if God's opened the door, guys, we don't have to fret. That's where He wants us to go. But when we stare at open doors and we pound on locked doors... We don't make any progress. We have got to focus on letting go of the things He's shut and moving forward in places that He has. And if a church will do that, and again, how do we know to do that? Because we've put Jesus first. If Jesus isn't first, there's all kinds of confusion. We don't know what to do. We're knocking on wrong doors and we're staring at open doors. Because Jesus may not be first. We're trying to do what's comfortable. What we want to do. Well, I'd like to do this ministry. God, this is what I want to do. And He's not opening that door. So we have to say, well, if God shut it, that's not where He wants us. And we have to be okay with that. And He opens another door and we say, man, that's not what I would have wanted to do. That's where God wants us. And I guarantee if we walk through that door, you know who's going to build His church? He said He would. 
Let's trust Him with it, right? In Colossians 1.18, it says there of Jesus that He is the head of the body. What's the body? The church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything, everything. See that? He might be preeminent. He might be preeminent. That means He might be first in rule, reign, and authority in everything. That's one of those texts where we look for a loophole. We look for a way out of that one. In everything. Not just on Sunday mornings for an hour. In everything. In every area of our life. Our finances, our families, our workplaces, our schools, our churches, our nation. In everything. Jesus alone is worthy to be first. I don't want to make it political at all, but you can see what happens when a nation becomes godless. And the only thing that's going to fix this country is repentance and faith in Christ. And the only way that happens is when God's people put Jesus first. If Jesus isn't first in the church, I never expect the world to ever get a glimpse of Jesus being first out there. It's up to us. We can pray for revival in our nation, and we should. But that famous verse that we quote all the time, 2 Chronicles 7.14 says what? If my people. It doesn't say if the Democrats, if the Republicans, if the lost people. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. Then I will hear from heaven. He gives us clear instructions. But again... I want to do it this way, God. Open that door. Let's bypass all that and let's, let's, let's just beat up the people out there. They're the problem. They're the problem out there. Not us, them. And we're banging on the wrong door. It's got to start with us. I want to see revival so bad, but it's got to start with us. It's got to start with me. It's got to start with me. So He is first in everything. And what does the enemy do to keep Jesus from being first? Pride. One of the greatest sins that we can commit is pride. It's a sin, and that's pride. And, and I put those two words up there just because I want you to think about something. What is right in the middle of those two words? That's it. In every sin, and in, and, in, and in pride especially, it's too much of ourselves. It's thinking too highly of ourselves or too low of Jesus. And if we really want to get closer to God, we have got to humble ourselves or we will be humbled. But one way or another, God exalts the humble. He gives grace to the humble. But He will never bless a prideful spirit. He will not. And so, as we look at this church in Philadelphia, we need to take their example and ask, is what we're doing for Jesus, is Jesus first in my life? Am I placing Him above all things? He goes on in verse 8 and He tells them, He says, I know your works. Again, He knows what's going on in these churches. He is very involved. And he says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you this open door. I've opened up this door for you that no one is able to shut. And then listen to what he says. Because a lot of times I think this is a problem for smaller churches, which I consider us still to be a fairly small church. He says to them, I know that you have but little power. You have just a little bit of power. Little strength, literally what he's saying there. A lot of times we, we wrestle with things. In any church, this is true, but especially in smaller ones. We say, 
If only we had more volunteers. If only we had a bigger budget. If only we had, if only we had, if only we had. Jesus says, I will build my church. We can wring our hands and we can fret and we can sit down and say, well, as soon as we get this, then we'll do something. Or we can say, well, for now, this is what we have. This is the door that He's opened. Let's move forward. Let's move forward. Are there things that I would like to do? Absolutely. Are there things you would like to do? Absolutely. But if we start a hundred programs and have ten people, nothing's going to work well. We have got to be faithful, to be stewards of what we have, and pray diligently for God to provide for the needs that we hope He will provide so that we can do more. But at the time where we're at, we have to trust that He knows what's best. And this church had little power. And again, we may look at that and we may think of ourselves and say, man, we're just so small. How much can we really do? We don't have big budgets like other churches. We don't have resources like other churches. One of my favorite scriptures is 2 Corinthians 12.9. In 2 Corinthians 12.9 it says, speaking to the Apostle Paul, God, Jesus says this, My grace is all you need, or my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Think about that. Think about what God is saying. My power, that's all we need, is made perfect or complete in weakness. When we are weak, He is strong. So we don't, we don't have to fret about our weaknesses and our shortcomings. That's when God steps in and shows Himself mighty. When we trust Him. When we put our faith in Him. He says, Paul goes on and says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses or my infirmities, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Man, I don't know about you, but I want the power of God on my life. If you've got the power of God on your life, you can face any enemy, you can overcome any sin. You can have victory in Jesus and not just sing it, but mean it and live it. We have access to that power because the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives in us. That's not, there's no clause in there that says only certain Christians get that. There's nothing in there that says that's just for pastors. That's for every born-again believer that when we put Christ first, when He is central, when we confess sin and seek His face, even in our weakness, He is made strong. His power is evident in our lives. Have you ever just been around people and you can just see God on them? You can hear it when they pray. You can see it when they live. That's what I want. And I want that for you and I hope you want it for yourself. And you can have that. But it won't just happen. It doesn't just happen, guys. You have got to surrender yourself to Christ. You've got to stop straddling the fence. You've got to stop playing games. You have got to confess sin. You have got to reconcile with people that you've hurt or have hurt you. You have got to do everything you can from a biblical perspective to be right with God in your walk from day to day. You've got to be faithful. And faithfulness is obedience to the Word of God. Faithfulness is being obedient to the Word of God. That's what He says to them, doesn't He? He says that you have but little power. But, but listen to what He says to them. You have 
kept my word. They didn't compromise. So many churches today have compromised. They've watered down the gospel. They've changed the gospel to appeal to people, to let the world come in and be accepted just as they are. Listen, if you're a sinner today, if you're lost, you are welcome at K. Russo Baptist Church. But you will hear the gospel preached. You will hear the word of God preached that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The pastor has sinned. The deacons have sinned. Everybody has sinned. But you can't stay in your sin and expect to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can't love the world and think heaven is your home. It doesn't work that way. Jesus Christ will change you from the inside out. When you turn from your sins and trust Jesus, the Bible says that you are born again. And if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creation. You will not be the same. You cannot be the same. Jesus will change your life for the better. You're chasing after the wind by thinking that the world is going to provide the things that are going to give you happiness and peace. Every new thing you buy will get old. Every new thing you buy will break, will grow old, will rot and rust and fade away. But if you lay for yourself treasure in heaven, my friends, you will have something that will carry over into the next life and into eternity. You will have something that no thief can steal, that no moth can destroy, rust can't corrupt it. It's perfect. Choose wisely. Don't waste your life chasing things that Solomon said are vanity. It's just vanity. And so he, he goes to this, this idea that they're faithful. They've kept His Word. He says that they've kept His name. They were faithful. They were faithful to the message. They were faithful to the Master. They persevered. And in these times, church, we need people that are faithful. We need people that will be faithful to God, that won't bend, that won't break, that will put Jesus first and will make Him the priority and the things that He desires. If Jesus takes an interest in it, we should take an interest in it. That begins with one another. God loves people. He died for people. He gave His life for people. We ought to love people. We ought to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We ought to love our enemies. We ought to love the world that persecutes us. Don't agree with them. Don't condone them. But we should love them. We should love them in every opportunity we get. And part of loving them is speaking the truth in love. But we should love them in everything they do. This church remained faithful. And he goes on and tells them in verse 9, Behold, listen, this is an amazing verse. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. So remember, we looked at that. These are Jews that are not really serving God, but are serving the enemy. They do all the religious stuff that looks good, but he calls them a synagogue of Satan. They're not worshiping God there. They're doing just the opposite. And there's many churches today that are doing the same thing. This synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews, but they are not and lie. He says, listen to this, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Does it not seem sometimes, we know better, but doesn't it seem like the world's winning sometimes? Don't you ever think, man, how much longer, God? How much longer is this going to happen? When are you going to step in and fix this thing? What is happening here, God? Why is it that faithful churches struggle so bad and godless churches seem to prosper? Have you ever read Psalm 73? If you haven't, you ought to read that sometime. David has the same question. He says, I look around at things. The godless, they have no pain. They have no sorrow. 
their life is pleasant. I'm paraphrasing here, but basically, and then he gets down towards the end of this, on the end of that psalm. I believe it's around verse 25, and he says this. He says, "Then I went into the sanctuary of God, and I beheld their end." Listen, Charles Spurgeon said, "You may be able to live without Christ, but you can't afford to die without Him." And one of these days. God is going to right all wrongs. One of these days, God's going to wipe the slate clean. He is going to judge the world in righteousness. In Hebrews, or I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians 15.25, it says that He, Jesus, must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. He is actively doing that right now. And one day that will come to a head. And every knee shall bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, both in heaven and on earth and under the earth, to the glory of God. That is going to happen, my friends. It could happen very soon. But God will right all wrongs. He's promised to do so. My, my question to you is on what side of the fence are you on? Are you a friend of God today, which only can be true if you've placed your faith in Christ? Or are you, as Ephesians 2 says, an enemy of God? And the wrath of God still abides on you. If you're outside of Christ today, that is your sentence already. The Bible says that you are condemned already because you have not believed in the, only begotten, the name of the only begotten Son of God. That is the seriousness of what we're talking about today. He encourages His church in Philadelphia in verse 10. He says, because you have kept My word. There it is again, more faithfulness about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole earth to try those who dwell on the earth. I know there is a lot of different opinions on the end times. You can be ah-mill, you can be pre-mill, you can be post-mill, you can be pre-trib, mid-trib, all different kinds, post-trib. There are so many opinions that sometimes it just seems so confusing to some people to even try to wrap your mind around it. But I, I firmly believe that this Scripture tells us, and many other Scriptures tell us, that on that cross, Jesus Christ took the wrath of God that I deserved. He said to them in the garden, He said to God, Not my will, but Thine be done. If it be Your will, let this cup pass from Me. All through the Old Testament, we see cups being poured out. Most of the time, it's symbolic of wrath and judgment. On the cross, Jesus Christ took the judgment of God for sin that you and I deserved. He drank that cup for us, and He drank it completely down. So let me ask you a question. If the coming time of judgment, which we call the tribulation period, or the great tribulation period, if that is coming on the whole world to judge them for their unbelief and their sins, why would Christ punish... His people for whom He already took the punishment. Why would He make His people suffer through a seven year period of judgment when Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God already in our place? My response is because we won't be here. My response is that the Word of God teaches that there will be a removal of the church before that period of judgment. And I believe that this text points to that. Listen to what He said there. Listen to what He says to this church, and I believe a promise to us as well. 
because you have kept my word, they were faithful and they have endured, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. There's coming a day of judgment. There is coming a time where God is going to judge the world. And I believe that His people will be taken away as the world is judged for their sins. So let me ask you this. Because He says in verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have. Now listen to this. So that no one may seize your crown. I am coming soon. That ought to get you excited. We don't know when, but He made a promise. And you guarantee that He is coming. And He's coming soon. But, but what, about, what about what He says in the second part of that verse? What, what's going on there? He says, so that no one may seize your crown. What exactly is Jesus saying there? I want to read to you from 2 John. So John wrote three letters plus the Gospel plus Revelation. In 2 John chapter 1, verse 8, listen to what he writes there. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what you have worked for, but may win a full reward. Question. Do we work for our salvation? Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We don't work for our salvation. John said, watch yourself so that you may not lose what we have worked for. Well, in our salvation, so what are we working for? What are we doing? After you're saved, if we were to read on in Ephesians there, we always stop at verse 9, but verse 10 says, For we are His workmanship, His poema, created in Christ Jesus for good works. After you are saved, after your life is changed, you ought to want to put Jesus first, and that ought to live out practically in the way that you do things. You ought to serve. Jesus Christ said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. We ought to want to serve. We have in, in Baptist churches anyway, we have two offices, a pastor or an elder, interchangeable term, and a deacon. The, the office of a deacon is one thing. But the word deacon is diakonos, and it means a servant. And in that sense, everybody in here is a deacon. You don't hold the office of a deacon, but you are a diakonos, you are a servant. That's the greatest title that anybody can have in the church. Greater than pastor, greater than deacon, trustee, Sunday school, the greatest title you can have in the church is servant. Because, man, that's the folks that God can use. When you are servant-minded, God can do some great things in your life. But when you'd rather be served all the time, sometimes we all need to be served, but if we never serve anybody else, we've missed the boat. We've missed what this thing is about. So what is John saying? Because here's the thing, I think a lot of times Christians rejoice in their salvation, and rightly so, but we think, well, phew, I got my ticket to heaven, I'm safe and secure, Pastor told me that there's eternal security and I can't lose it, so I'm good to go. Whether I do a little bit, whether I don't do anything, whether I sit and warm a pew, or whether I serve in 15 different capacities, it don't matter because I'm going the same heaven He is. So I'll just sit back and take it easy. 
Well, I got news for you. I hope this isn't the first time you've heard this. But believers are going to stand in judgment. Believers are going to stand in judgment. Now listen, unbelievers are going to stand in judgment what's called the great white throne judgment at the end of the age. And they are going to be condemned eternally for their unbelief and for their sins. But believers are going to stand before Jesus Christ at what's called the Bema Seat Judgment for your rewards. He is going to, you are going to stand before Him today and your life, from the time you met Jesus to the time you went to be with Jesus, we're going to watch it. He's going to watch it. I'm not for you, but you're going to watch it for yourself. And you're going to see everything that you did and didn't do. Every opportunity that you squandered. Everything that you could have done for Christ, but you were too busy, you were too lazy. Whatever the excuse. On that day, there will be no more excuses. Let me give give you some verses, because I'm not just giving you my opinion here. I want to give you the Bible. 2 Corinthians 5.10. Paul says there, he's writing to believers, we must all, nobody's getting out of this thing, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body of whether good or evil. John spoke about getting a reward. And here he says about losing your crown. We're speaking about the Christian race that we're running and the rewards. We didn't work for our salvation. It's not that. But we better be working for the Lord as much as we can. When we have an opportunity, when God swings open that door, go through it. Run through it. Knock people over if you have to. But get through the door that He has opened for you. 1 Corinthians 3, 12-15, here's another verse speaks the same thing. Now if anyone builds on the foundation, listen, with gold and silver and precious stones, with wood and hay and straw, each one's work will be manifest. For the day, the day of judgment, will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, what happens? There you go. He will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. He's not saying that if you didn't work hard enough, you're going to lose your salvation. He says right here, you will be saved, but you're going to suffer loss because everything that you spent your life chasing after burned up in the fire. He had a big bonfire and all this stuff that you spent the last 5, 10, 50 years chasing after, it helped to light that fire. And you'll enter heaven smelling like an ashtray, basically. You'll make it, but you're going to stink when you get there, is what he's saying, paraphrasing it. I don't want that. I want the power of God on my life. I'm not going to stand here for a moment and tell you that from the time I wake up to the time I go to bed every single day, I'm putting Jesus first and I never fail Him. Because that's certainly not the case. But as best as I can, and I hope the best as you can every day, we want to try to set aside our lives for Christ to use us. Whatever way He can. Last verse and we'll close here. Verse 12, He says, The one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. What on earth is that talking about? We've seen in every one of these cities there were pagan temples. One of the things that they would often do in these temples is when someone was... We, we even sometimes used to do it in churches. You ever had a faithful member, maybe somebody gave a lot, and so we put, they might still be here from when Millville was here, a little plaque on the side of the pew 
Like they, they paid, I don't know, they paid so many tithes that they let them buy the pew. I guess nobody can sit in that pew. I don't really know what the, not being funny, I don't know why they do that, but you've probably seen that before, right? So in these pagan temples, if someone was honoring to that deity or someone well-known in the city, they would have a pillar and they would engrave these folks' names in the pillar of that temple. Well, God is using that illustration to say, I know your name too. And if you have faithfully served me, your name is going to be put down in my temple. I don't know about you, but I, w- I would want my name not only be written in the Lamb's Book of Life, but I would be pretty honored if I went into the temple in the New Jerusalem and saw my name somewhere in there, wouldn't you? That'd be a pretty amazing, humbling thought, wouldn't it? And so the idea is, you know, he's saying that we're going to dwell in strength and the security of Christ. If we're faithful to Him, if we've trusted, He sealed us with His Holy Spirit. He keeps us secure. He watches over us. Are we faithfully serving Him? I want to close with this story from Max Lucado. He talks about a guy named Norman Geisler. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Norman Geisler. He passed away recently. But he was a wonderful theologian, uh, man of God. Here's a story about him as told by Max Lucado. It says, Norman Geisler as a child went to VBS because he was invited by some neighbor children. He went back to that same church for Sunday school classes for 400 Sundays. Each week he, he, made, he was faithfully picked up by a bus driver. Week after week he attended church, but he never made a commitment to Christ. Finally, during his senior year in high school, after being picked up for the church over 400 times, he gave his life to Christ. Now listen to this. What if that bus driver had given up on Geisler at number 395? What if the bus driver said, that kid is going nowhere spiritually? Why waste any more time on him? What if the bus driver said, well, I'm going to stay home tonight. Somebody else can go pick somebody up. Do you see how important things that you do that may seem small really are? Do you see why things like the nursery matters? Do you see that if you just served in the nursery one Sunday and a young family was able to come in here and listen without being interrupted and they heard the gospel and got saved, that that, could save, that would change their family for generations? Nothing is small in the kingdom of God. The problem is it's so hard to get people to volunteer for things. It's so hard to get people to be committed to things. Because most people only want to do what they want to do. And ultimately, sometimes in the church, to be faithful means to do things that you don't want to do. If God's opened the door. If we have a nursery, and we have a need for kids to go in the nursery, that's an open door. It just is, guys. If I wasn't up here, I'd serve in a nursery, and I'm not just saying that. I would. Because it's a need. And I feel like when there's needs presented to us as the body of Christ, I know we have gifts. I know we have strong suits. I know we have physical limitations that don't always make everything possible. But I think sometimes we look too much for excuses instead of answers. Instead of trying to find answers to this. I'm going to invite the praise team to come. And I want to read this verse and we'll close. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, Moreover, it is required of stewards... Which again, we are all stewards. Everything we have is from God. There's not one thing that we have that God didn't give us. We just steward it. That means we oversee it. It's required of stewards that they be found faithful. The most important thing you can do for God is to be faithful. Before you can be used by God in any capacity, you've got to be faithful. Before you can hold a position in the church, you've got to be faithful. Before you can have opportunities to do more, you've got to be faithful with what you have. 
If God's given you a little and you're not faithful with that, don't expect Him to give you more. What most churches need is simply for their members to be faithful. And as they prove themselves faithful, I promise you more doors will open and more opportunities will come. But if you're not faithful, it's hard to trust you with more. It's hard to believe that God will bless your unfaithfulness. Quite the contrary. My prayer today is that we would be more like the church in Philadelphia. That we would be faithful with what we have. Faithful to serve. Faithful to put Christ first. And if we do that, He will build His church even greater than He already has. And He will build your life into something even greater than He already has. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. We thank You that You have enabled us and provided for us everything we need. But it's up to us to answer the call, Lord. It's up to us to turn from our sin, to give our time to You, to make You first in our life, and to take advantage of the opportunities, Lord, to serve as Isaiah said, Here I am, Lord, send me. Use me, Lord. Even if it's in areas that I may not choose first, I'm available. Lord, use me. I pray today that we would commit to that. I pray today that decisions are made. Most of all, I pray today if someone doesn't know Jesus, that they would see how faithful He's been to give His life for them, to let them come today to hear the Word preached and to respond to Him in faith. Lord, have Your way in this invitation. We pray and give You thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand and as we sing, the altar is